Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Most Straight Radio from PRX, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. So what do you feed your pet? Maybe some kibble and some wet food or maybe leftover burgers as a treat? On TikTok, Sean McDonald cooks gourmet food for his pet. Tasting menu dish three for my baby puppy, Hazelnut. Hazel, ready for more food? 
This one obviously has a refined palette, but she also loves modern <laughs> minimalistic art, so I'm gonna try to incorporate that into today's dish. Good girl. When Sean, a restaurant chef, cooks at home for his chocolate lab hazelnut, he doesn't use any seasoning or salt, but he does think about technique and the best ingredients. I did a uh, tornado Rossini once, which is like uh, beef Bordelaise sauce, which is like a bone marrow jus, foie gras. I put a little bit of truffle on there. And then on like a piece of sourdough, uh, I did prawn with the celery and the prawn broth. I did puppy-friendly sushi, so I put all these like weird things on sushi. I did like some traditional sushi, but I also did some where it was like duck liver, chicken heart, like all these dog-friendly kind of raw foods. Like many restaurant chefs, Sean says he doesn't really cook for himself, but he'll always cook for hazelnut. Always, of course. I remember saying it before I got her. I was like, I'm going to feed her. She's going to be the best fed dog ever on the planet. I want her to eat the tastiest food, even though everything probably tastes the same to her because she's a dog. That was Sean McDonald. You can find him on Instagram at MacD. To help tell the story of cooking for pets, I'm joined now by journalist Alex Beggs. Her article for Taste is called Bone Appetit, The Short and Happy History of Cookbooks for Dogs. Alex, welcome to Milk Street. Oh, thanks for having me. So here's my question. Before dog food, before <laughs> cookbooks for dogs, you know, what did people feed their dogs like 100 years ago? My understanding is that people fed their dogs the cheapest possible meat they could find. Okay, that makes sense. But then just after the First World War, you could actually go out and buy commercial dog food. And then eventually a few people had this great idea, you know, why not do a cookbook for dogs? When did that happen and, and why did it happen? Yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised it took until the mid-60s to have a cookbook for dogs. The first book that I was able to track down was Martin Gartner's book, The Secret of Cooking for Dogs, and he also did The Secret of Cooking for Cats. And I tracked him down to talk about it to confirm yours was the first book, right? And he said, yes, that was the whole reason he did it. He went to the library, he made sure it hadn't been done before. That was very important for him to be trailblazing. And so his is the first, and it's absolutely delightful. And this comes hard on the heels of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. So, yes. yes. Just a few <laughs> years before, yes. I don't know if they have much in common, but I'd like to think I could find something if I had to. Well, I love MFK Fisher. She wrote, her, I think, a review of the cat book. Uh, uh, in, yes, of both books. Yeah. In the New Yorker, of all things. No pet cookbook has been reviewed in the New Yorker since. No, she has this great quote. Mr. Gardner assumes the cats will eat soup. I've been trying to prove this for 50 years with no luck at all, and even his <laughs> persuasive hints about it do not convince me. So she had some fun with this notion of, you know, cooking for your pet. Yes, and there's a fabulous picture, I don't know if you've seen, with her. It's a black and white photo, and she's holding her cat almost up to her face. No, I have not seen that. Big cat lady. <laughs> so the chapters, you know, hooray for filet, soups on, pregnant paws, senior mm -hmm. citizens... Um, was this all just tongue in cheek or were any of these recipes things that people might actually make for their dog or cat? They were very legit. Martin told me the recipes were from his friends who had dogs and from some vets and they're very simple, blended up liver and cottage cheese and things like that. So it seems like 
easy enough to be realistic to do and that there's always an audience out there who's willing to try it. Then this trend continues. Um, Mm -hmm. My favorite title, Bone Appetit, from (laughs) Susan Anson in 1989. But by this time, things are getting weird. I mean, I mean, this isn't just like, you know, mix up some liverwurst. This is canine carbonara. Yeah. Bacon, ziti, peas, onions, mushrooms, parmesan, and anchovy fillets. A delicacy for dogs, quote, who go wild over the fish aroma. Um, And in that book, Bon Appetit, there's a recipe for golden skin elixir, which I think is a a category of sort of medicinal dog foods. Is that something that sort of runs through these books, too? Definitely. I'd say most people who start cooking for their dogs are usually doing it out of medical necessity. The author Rick Woodford, whose books sell really well, have a health focus, and he told me that his dog had cancer and he started cooking for Mm. it, and the dog lived another four years Mm. um, and was healthier than ever. So yeah, they all kind of start with a medical-seeming necessity and then become a fun hobby that people want to share with others. So I, I read with some shock and amusement that Judith Jones, who I knew a little bit back in the 80s, who edited Julia Child's Mastery of French Cooking, among other books, she did a cookbook for dogs. Yes, and that was the genesis of this story. My editors at Taste came across Judith Jones' book, which is called Love Me, Feed Me, Sharing with Your Dog the Everyday Good Food You Cook and Enjoy. There's also, though, a line that gets crossed here. And if you go back to Judith Jones in, in her cookbook for dogs, mentions that her dog has a taste for gorgonzola dolce. <laughs> so, look, I can understand if you think your dog deserves more than canned or dry dog food. But gorgonzola dolce, I mean, it, is that crossing a line? I'm not going to be the dog food line cross police. I think it's all wonderful. But I'm thinking about how the dog cookbook authors I spoke to, I would say, what was your dog's favorite recipe? Or what did they like? What did they not like? You know, as if it's a kid who who doesn't eat cauliflower. And they almost all said, my dog does not have a discerning palate. They'll eat whatever's in front of them. So you start to think about, you know, why are you doing this? Are you doing this for the dog? Or are you doing this for a feeling that it sparks inside you? And if so, what is that feeling? When you did research for this article, Did you get a sense of where the world of dog food stands today? In other words, I know that dog food has become a gourmet category now, right? Um, Is dog food viewed as something that people don't like feeding their dogs anymore, or has the world changed in dog food so you can get really high-quality food? I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I I think it's interesting how it mirrors our current human skepticism with some things in the food world. So Rick Woodford's books, for example, he talks about, you know, you don't want all this processed stuff in your dog's food. I'm giving you options in the way that we have people at the grocery store who are scared of buying Cheetos because of all the processed ingredients that may be in them to preserve them. So I think those those anxieties that we have over our own food kind of reflect over in the dog food world too. Um, were there recipes, we mentioned a few, were there recipes in any of these books that really stood out to you as either being actually quite reasonable or being totally insane or something else? Well, some of the like sardines on toast in Martin Gardner's book from the 60s sounded like nice little Christinis to me. Um, but Judith Jones, you know, it's like she made 
Musica for her dog, <laughs> like beautiful red lentils, uh, asparagus and mushroom risotto. One was a pizza recipe for a dog, and I asked the author, how does a dog eat pizza? You know, he doesn't have opposable thumbs. She said, well, I kind of had to hold it there while he's eating it, and I really liked that image. <laughs> so is this really a big trend, cooking for your pet? And after you finish your article, do you have a better understanding of why people you know, go to all these lengths? Well, as far as is this a thing a lot of people do, no, this is an extremely niche hobby, but... One thing I was thinking about as far as like society and this moment in time we're in and what it all means, <laughs> what does dog cooking for your dog mean about humanity? Uh, have you ever read about this happiness course at Yale? Uh, no, I missed that one. So it's this class at Yale that anyone can take now about how to be happy. And it's based on a lot of evidence about what makes people happy. And one of those things is taking care of people and taking care of others and recognizing your own act of kindness can boost your own happiness. So I think it's coming from a place of, to me, very beautiful outsized devotion and love for this other being. And it's not a human being and that's fine. It's coming from a place of feeling like you did something selfless for someone else today and that boosts your happiness and maybe theirs too, especially if you cooked the turkey pate right. However, I don't cook for my cat, so I just kind of feel like a jerk. <laughs> but here's what I like. There's a this idea of why are people cooking more for dogs than cats? But I think you you were quoted as saying, we don't even bathe cats, so why would you cook for them? So yeah. I, I, I guess there is, you now cat lovers are going to send thousands of emails to Milk Street. Um, but I, I take the point. Um, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, now I maybe I have a new project, do a cookbook for pets. Thank you. Lots yet to do. Thank you for having me. That was Alex Beggs, author of the Taste article, Bone Appetit, the short and happy history of cookbooks for dogs. Next up, it's time to answer some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Well, hello, Chris. How the heck are you? I'm good. Good. What is your favorite way to eat an egg? I mean, for breakfast? Yeah. Let me count the ways. Count them. I love poaching them, and I use poaching cups, the little metal thing that sits on the side of your pot. Whoa. You spray it or oil it, put the egg on, it goes down, sits above the water, put the top on, and you essentially steam it. Works perfectly every time. That's great. I do scrambled eggs using hot olive oil instead of butter. It's a Spanish technique. They cook really fast and they fluff right up because oil's hotter than butter because butter has water in it, right. of course. And fried eggs, I like them crispy. Around the edges. And I don't want this soft. I like some real crisp to it. Um, those would be my three go-to. Yeah. And you? Oh, geez. I almost never met an egg I didn't like cooked almost anyway. But I'd say fried is right up there. Yeah, fried's good. You know, because I like runny yolks. I see them as part of the sauce, whatever. So I'll throw it on top of a sandwich or put it over some... Noodles. Noodles, soup, a stew, and then it just becomes part of the... It's, yeah, it's my go-to cheat for yeah. dinner. Yummy. And one last thing is za'atar. 
the spice mix with the herb and the sesame seeds and the sumac yeah. really goes well in eggs. Oh, you know, I haven't tried yeah. that. Or, or that. Aleppo pepper or, you know, the red chili Yes, also goes really well oh, in eggs. Okay. So. Eggs. Love eggs. Yes. <laughs> A message from the egg board. Right. Well, let's, <laughs> Thank you. let's take our call. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is James calling from Salt Lake City. Hi, James. How can we help you today? My fiancé and I are getting married next month, and we are moving into a new house. We've got our first kitchen that we're outfitting together. How exciting. Yes, it's very exciting. Thank you. We're wondering if you have any tips of tools or equipment or ingredients we should add to our new kitchen. Well, do you have the basics? Yes, we cook quite a lot already, so maybe just things that are basics in your kitchen but might not be basics in my kitchen. Oh, right. I love gadgets. I'm sort of a gadget nerd, but they have to be useful. So, okay, one thing I love is my Spetzel maker. They are pretty cheap, and they're really great. They're not electric, and it's fresh pasta. It looks like a washboard that you put over, Uh you know, a plank, and you go back and forth. So that's really easy. My favorite, and this is really silly, and you may already have one, is what's referred to (laughs) as the giant cake lifter. It looks uh-huh. like a giant bench scraper a metal, and it's supposed to be used to lift cakes. And, yeah, it does that pretty well. But it also um, moves massive amounts of chopped vegetable from your cutting board to your sheet pan. So I love yeah. that. I use it for everything. Another thing Wonderful. I've discovered, because I grind my own beans for my coffee, so I do uh-huh. a burr grinder instead of a coffee grinder. And uh-huh. I want to mention an ingredient that I also discovered from Milk Street, garlic confit. Okay, Chris? Here's some really weird things. In Japan, they use drop lids. They're often made of wood, but they also have them of metal. When you're cooking vegetables, steaming or boiling them, it fits inside the saucepan and keeps everything cooking evenly, which is nice. There's a cutting board called the Hasegawa, H-A-S-E-G-A-W-A, and they're very expensive. They're like $120, but it's the best cutting board. It will not warp. It has sort of a cushioned surface. It's just great on your knives. It's a pleasure to use. It's heavy. It's terrific. There's a ginger grater Mm -hmm. called the Moha, M-O-H-A. It's a brown metal, fairly cheaply made, maybe four or five inches in diameter. The top is rounded, concave with little holes in it. And you can move the ginger around in any direction instead of going in one direction. And it grates really fast. And then underneath, as you turn the top, the top opens from the bottom. It has a little windshield wiper. So it cleans off the underside of the grater. It's just amazing. I wouldn't say it's a work of art, but it works really well. Uh, A small offset spatula, Mm -hmm. maybe five inches long, four inches long. And it's good for taking cake batter, even in a bun pan where you don't have a lot of room to maneuver. And evening the top. It's absolutely essential. And finally, Aleppo pepper is my new favorite ingredient. Uh, It's not harvested in Syria anymore, but in Turkey. It's a red, very fruity pepper. It's not too hot. And I basically have given up black peppercorns mostly now and uh, use that. Oh, oh, one last thing. There's a bread knife out of Japan called a Sesaragi, S-E-S-E-R-A-G-I, that has three different kinds of serrations on it. And it's not very heavy, has a great wooden handle, and it is amazing. The best bread knife I've ever used. So, wow. These are all great gift ideas for a wedding registry, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I'd like to get married all over again if for no other reason than this. James, thank you for calling. 
Yes. Hey, thanks so much, y'all. Have a good day. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to answer your culinary questions. Give us a ring anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Emma Whitlock from Columbus, Georgia. How can we help you in the kitchen? So I love to bake, and recently I decided that I wanted to try to challenge myself and start making macarons. I found two different types of recipes, the French style and the Italian style, and I've had mixed results. So I was wondering if there's one method that tends to have better results than the other one. And then if I find a recipe for one style, can I use that same ingredient ratio to make the other style, if that makes sense? Excellent questions. And we don't know the answer. No. <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 the French style is egg whites and sugar, obviously, whipped together. Italian style is egg whites with sugar syrup, which is heated, obviously, and drizzled into the whites as you beat them. You know, an Italian meringue, for example, I used as a frosting for cakes. It's pretty stable. So the Italian version gives you more stable meringue, which means when you fold in other ingredients, it's easier. The French method is simpler mm-hmm. to do because you're not heating up sugar or water. But when you fold in the other ingredients, the foam is not as stable, and you're more likely to disturb the foam. <laughs> is that a French pastry chef term? Disturb the foam. <laughs> um, so French is easier. Italian's more stable. And then I think they're a little different. I think Italian meringue's probably a little more powdery. I think French meringues tend to be uh-huh. a little chewier to me, but that's just my personal take. Sarah? You're the French expert here. Yeah, although I'm not really a big baker. But I agree with what Chris had to say. The French meringue is easy. You beat the whites. You know, sometimes you add a little acid to them, and then when they get foamy and start to get soft peaks, and you add the sugar and et cetera. So it's pretty simple. Um, the Italian reminds me of a buttercream I used to make with my sister. This cake every year we used to make for my mother, and this will make Chris nervous too because he feels the same way about this cake. It was a Genoise oh, no. PTSD. Oh, no. Yeah, we no. hate that. We hate no. the Genoise with this buttercream and then with praline. The and cake that never turns out well. Well, the cake that made us cry. That's what we call it. But the thing about the Italian meringue is you have to get the sugar syrup to a certain temperature between 235 and 240, which is soft ball stage. And then you have to drizzle it on top of the egg whites. And, you know, it can get caught in the beater. And so it is a little bit fraught. You know, the more you do it, the better you'll get. And it is more stable. The one thing I would say is I wouldn't take a recipe for one and use the method of the other. It just won't work. Okay. Uh, it's just not the same ratio of sugar. There's water in the one and not in the other. Well, look, you're mixing French and Italian. That right. just well, I mean, never there works. There you go. There you yeah, go. It's just not going to yeah. happen, yeah. especially when it comes to desserts. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, if you want to make your life easy, just do the French one. If you want to get a little more sophisticated, then I would continue with you know, the Italian I, I, one. I found with making Italian meringues, I do it a lot for cakes, getting it just the right temperature uh, I don't think it ma- – it's not like making candy. It's, well, it's pretty forgiving. There's a range, yeah. yeah. The temperature is pretty forgiving. But, yeah. you know, try both and see what you like. Okay. Instant rate thermometer, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yes. And it's good to tilt the saucepan up so you get a good reading with the depth of the sugar syrup. And also take a reading in more okay. than one spot. Yeah. Because it'll come up with a different temperature every time. Yeah. <laughs> That's the fun of pastry. <laughs> but, but, by the way, so so when you make your meringues, do they turn out well? 
Um, it's been mixed. Sometimes I've had some that turned out just great. And then other times I have them and they have, you know, the big holes in the middle of them. So I'm trying to kind of narrow down and figure out what my issues are. I think anyone who makes meringues eventually has issues. It's a challenge. It's a challenge, but good for you. Yeah. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get. We applaud you. And we'll eat your meringues anytime. Yes. (laughs) Okay, Emma. Thanks for calling. Thank thank you. you. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You know, remember back in the 80s, you and I were kind of starting out in this field. And there was this, I don't think it was a Time Magazine cover, but it was like, is cooking dead? Like, is God dead? Remember that? That was one of those themes. And now, 30, 40 years later, people are making meringues at home. I know. No, it's crazy. The answer is no. (laughs) You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, a new way to think about baking with Paul Hollywood. That's coming up in just a moment. Hey, Chris Kimball here asking for a favor. There's something you can do to help us out. Just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Milk Street Radio. Tell us and new listeners what you love about the show and why you listen every week. We'd really appreciate it. And thanks. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza... I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. 
It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Paul Hollywood. He's been a judge on The Great British Bake Off since it premiered in 2010. On the show, contestants compete for fame, glory, and a rare handshake from Paul, which is now known as the Hollywood Handshake. His new book is called Bake, My Best Ever Recipes for the Classics. Paul, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Let's start with the Great British Bake Off. What is that actually like? In other words, what's the fun part of that show and what's the not-so-fun part that nobody actually sees? I think that I'll start with the not-so-good stuff is when you're forced to eat 36 bites of something that's extremely sweet. Even though it sounds amazing, you're filling yourself. You feel bloated. It's not a very nice experience. But having said that, I think ultimately being on the Bake Off is a real treat because to be paid to judge some of the most amazing bakes I've had during my time and and meet some incredible bakers as well. It's obviously almost turned into a cult at the moment, the Bake Off. It's a strange sight when you first see it because it's this colossal, and it is big, huge white tent looking like an alien spacecraft that's just landed in the middle of a field. Okay, let's let's talk about baking. So... You say that margarine, you use that with butter or instead of butter, like in a chocolate fudge cake. You think that gives you better texture overall? Margarine can give you texture, gives you more of a flake, and butter gives you the flavor. I mean, butter tastes nicer than margarine or shortening, you know, obviously because it's butter, it's the purest thing. Whereas margarine tends to give more of a flake or lard, actually, is the other thing. I mean, you can make a great lardy cake, a very, you know, very old recipe using lard and it's beautiful absolutely beautiful and it creates a flake it creates a beautiful glisten it creates a nice crunch but then butter will add this gorgeous lusciousness to it and this richness to it and obviously more flavor 
And so it's horses for courses. I mean, certain recipes, uh, it's nice to have just butter. Others, it's good to have just margarine. And then others, I like the idea of blending because then you get the best of, of both worlds. Uh, weighing ingredients. Um, you actually weigh your eggs, which is interesting because here in the States, uh, we rarely do that. We just say six large eggs. You find that egg sizes vary enough so that weighing them is actually critical? I think it is. I think if you crack an egg, drop it in, normally weighs about 60 gram. You know, some of the small ones can weigh 50 or 40, and some of the large ones can be 70. Also, if you've knocked in 120 or 180 gram of egg into a bowl and you've whisked it up a little bit to break it up, you can easily add a little bit of a time to a, a mixture rather than a whole egg, 60 grams straight in, and then it could curdle. So I think doing it this way is more accurate and certainly safer. Uh in your scone recipe, which I guess was the Queen Mother's favorite, you use bread flour yeah. instead of all-purpose flour. And that's kind of interesting. Could you talk about that? Well, that's because in my professional career, that's all I ever used for scone. So I never never used the plain flour. So it actually creates more of a bloom in the oven. So it grows. And what it does is creates an amazing balanced growth and it gives more of a kick. So it opens up the texture a little bit inside the scone. The thing is with that when you're using uh, strong flour, you cannot overmix it because if you overmix it, what will happen is it'll get too tight and then it gets a bit rubbery on the mouth. So you want to be able to just bring it together and then cut, rest it you know, for about five, 10 minutes in the fridge, preferably, and then pop it into a nice hot oven and it just blasts up perfect level and it's crispy and then beautifully soft on the inside. So here's a quote from your book, Bake. Yeah. Uh, I can assure you that all the cookies in this chapter fully stand up to the dunk test. Uh, <laughs> what, why are you obsessed with dunking cookies? It's everything? a tradition in the UK to dunk your biscuits. And obviously when I say biscuits, I'm talking cookie, but I love dunking a ginger nut or a ginger biscuit into tea, a very hot cup of tea. If you put it in once, that's enough. Then you eat it because it's beautiful and soft. If you put it in twice, you could lose it. And that's a problem. <laughs> so Ultimately, I love it's just been a thing. It's quite a big thing. I suppose it's only the Brits that do that. Although the Italians do dunk their biscotti. Yeah, yeah. and the French with their croissant in their coffee. Except it's hard to find a good croissant in Paris. I think it's hard to find a good croissant anywhere nowadays. I think they've gone down the mass produced route now, which is all done in factories, and they throw them out to the little bakeries and all they do is bake them off. And I think they've lost their way slightly. Um Lemon drizzle cake is one of your favorites. It is. Uh, it's one of those things that I don't think we make here very much. So is this basically a drizzled pound cake or a sponge cake or what? It's a sponge cake, basically, with a, a slightly watered-down lemon curd, if you like, sugar mixture, which it gets put into the cake when it comes out the oven. And all you do is you pierce it and then let the soak drip through, right. and it wets and introduces a more intense lemon flavor. And it also introduces a a slightly sugar crust on the top of the cake. So as mm-hmm. you break into it, we used to do it for afternoon tea for all the big hotels, you know, whether it's fruit cake, cherry cake, walnut cake, banana cake. And it was all with certain teas went with certain cakes. It was, you know, whether it's Lapsang, Souchong, or, or it was Assam or Earl Grey. And that's what it's all about. It's about getting the senses involved with some intense flavors and, and doing the lemon drizzle, which is a very classic British cake. It's been around for many, many hundreds of years. It is one of my favorites, and I love them. Only the British would name a uh, roll 
after a trash can lid, I think. <laughs> so so what is it with bin lids? I never heard of this before. Well, ba- basically, that? a bin lid is a large soft roll. So you can get soft rolls in the States. You know, the like burger buns, if you like. Yeah. Well, yeah. then a bin lid is four or five times bigger than that. And the where I grew up in Liverpool, in our chip shops, our fish and chip shops, you used to get, um, you could get a portion of chips and then you get what they call a bin lid. So you get this huge soft roll, which you can fill with lots and lots of chips and have the biggest chip butty you've ever had in your life. And it tastes amazing. And that's where it came from. It came back from my working class roots in Liverpool. So, wait, wait. So you have this huge roll and you fill it with chips? Yeah, fill it with chips, yeah. Chip butty. There you go. Yeah. You guys, I mean, it's the best of times and the worst of times, right? In <laughs> Absolutely, <British> yes. <laughs> um, let's go back to growing up. So you grew up above the bakery. Yeah. Your dad was a baker, and you did not want to go into that business, yeah, he but he bribed you, which I guess was very effective. Um, what was that like? What kind of bakery was it? You didn't like it. You did like it. Oh, I loved it. I think the smell of a bakery, I think when you lived above it, it sort of seeped into your life. You know, it become part of you. My dad always coming back from the bakery from, you know, downstairs, upstairs, and he'd smell of bread and cakes. And I ended up coming into the industry, obviously, and I smelled like bread and cakes. But initially, I do remember sort of disappearing off and sitting in the shop with my mum, helping serving the bread and cakes. But it was great. I mean, <laughs> you just wander up and pick up a, a cream cake and eat it. But that's, a, you know, one of my kids actually did this for a while. It's If you want to pick a hard profession, mm. getting up at 2 in the morning, know. you know, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy life. It's not. So, so what was your conclusion after having your own bakery? I, I think... During the bakery times, I was approached for TV work because someone had put my name forward. I think Sue Perkins had put my name forward for Bake Off. I was asked to go to do an audition, which I did. And fortunately, I got the job. And in the end, I realized I couldn't do all this TV stuff and run my business at the same time. And I couldn't honestly sell my own bread under my name without me actually making it myself. And in the end, the, the, the Bake Off took over my life and that is that middle ground. I'm still involved with my trade, but more as a teacher now, an evangelist than I was, you know, as an actual baker. What is your job at the Bake Off? In other words, what did you have to learn to get really good at it? Uh, I think I've always been quite judgmental with the lads that have worked for me and guys that have trained up who worked for me. And I was always on their case. I'd walk past the rack and say, what's happened with this one? So when it came to judging amateur bakers, that was fantastic. What's changed is it's more of a almost tutorial because the bakers themselves, when, when you're critiquing their work, you're trying to offer advice on going forward, how they can better themselves in the kitchen. And I, I like to think that that does help. Do you ever start giving advice and criticism and you see the tears welling up? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> so some people don't take it too well. All the time. And it's because yeah. sometimes you've got to think a bit from their point of view, Maybe all the people around them have never actually told them the truth about their baking. So maybe right. that recipe that they've been making for 10 years, if someone bakes you a cake and brings it to you, you're not going to turn around and say, that's the worst cake I've ever had in my life, or <laughs> that's too salty, or that's too right. sweet. You know, because you're just glad someone's actually baked something for you, and they think of you that much, they've made you something right. which you should appreciate, like it or not. In my job, I, I, I don't have to follow that rule. I have to be honest with them. And therefore, they end up getting a little bit better anyway. It's a learning process. 
once in a while you must get surprised, right, by one of the contestants. Mm. Have there been cases where someone produced something absolutely amazing you didn't expect mm. or something so vile you wanted to spit it out <laughs> after taking a bite? Yeah, the, the, um, both camps, yeah. I mean, fortunately, it's more sublime than the ridiculous. I think when I started shaking someone's hand, because I was genuinely surprised, I was really, wow, <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. That's almost professional. Do you know what I mean? So that's where I shook their hand and said, thank you. Well done. You know, that's a great job. So some years I'll give more handshakes out, some years I won't. But it comes down to the quality of what's on that plate. And sometimes it is absolutely stunning. If you had to pick one recipe, and I think your favorite's probably lemon drizzle cake, but is there one recipe you think should be part of everyone's repertoire here in the States? Do you know what? I've always said uh, lemon drizzle cake is a very basic cake, but actually it's not. Um, In the sense of when you eat it, it's not a normal sponge. It's a very enriched, it's heightened, it's quite tart. It's full of lemon and it is absolutely delicious. And I'd love every American household to get it, improve it if they wish. Once you've mastered it, if you want to add a little bit of tangerine or maybe some other fruits in there or layers of apple in there, make it your own, make it a family tradition. Yeah. But then eventually someone's going to add rosemary to it or yeah, then you're off to the race. Well, yeah, but I'd say if you like rosemary in it, you go for it. (laughs) Paul, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, Thank thank you, Krista. You take care. That was Paul Hollywood. His new book is called Bake. You can find his recipe for lemon drizzle cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. In 1938, Freddie Griswold hosted The Spelling Bee and became the very first game show host. The genre soon took off with To Tell the Truth, What's My Line, Let's Make a Deal, The Gong Show, American Idol, and today a dozen or more cooking competitions. But to attract a large audience, these competitions have to push the boundaries, from Guy's Grocery Games to Cutthroat Kitchen. Bake Off, however, is a little more Dickens than YouTube. It's a kinder, gentler take on humanity. Or as Vera Lynn once sang, they'll always be in England. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Jay Kenji Lopez-Al teaches us how to cook outside with a walk. That's after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, 
available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, spicy Chinese beef skewers. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, one of the great pleasures in my life is interviewing interesting people on radio. And I spoke to Jason Wang, owner of Xi'an Famous Foods in New York. Great story. He is a great cookbook. And he was telling me when he was a kid in Xi'an with his dad, they go to the Muslim Quarter and order meat skewers, spice meat skewers. And he really associates those flavors with the cooking of Xi'an. So you got busy, we got busy, and decided to make these spicy beef skewers at home. So I think actually Jason said that when they would go to the Muslim Quarter and buy these, they would buy them by the tens. So like 10, 20 at a time. So as you can tell, this is something you're going to want to make and want to make a lot of. The key to this recipe is pretty simple. It comes down to spicing twice. So we're going to coat them with some toasted spices. We toast all of those cumin seeds, Szechuan peppercorns, and fennel seeds, then grind them, add the pepper flakes and the salt. The meat takes a little bath in some soy sauce, some Shaoxing wine and oil. We thread them onto the skewers and then coat it with the spice mixture. That gets cooked on a hot grill, takes 
literally like five minutes. It's the fastest thing you'll ever make. And then we coat it again with that spice mixture. So you're getting two layers of flavor. You've got the first round that gets kind of toasted when you cook it over the grill, gets a little bit of char on the meat. And then that second layer is a little bit fresher, a little brighter. Those peppercorns are really kind of mouth numbing and you've got that really aggressive heat from the pepper flakes. So this is a twofer. We often marinate a meat and then reserve part of the marinade before we use the rest of it on the meat. And then the marinade becomes the sauce at the end, right? So a similar concept. Yeah, same kind of concept here. These are great tips for any kind of grilling. We're using flat iron steak here, which is one of my favorite cuts. It's very well marbled, cooks really fast, has a pretty decent amount of fat on it, which you should not trim away. We like that fat for the flavor and also for the richness. You could use the same method with the spice twice or marinade and reserve on chicken. You could use it on fish and certainly on beef or pork or lamb. I need to give a commercial for flat iron steak now. If, if, <laughs> if I could have 10 seconds. I hadn't had it in years. I bought it last weekend at a local butcher and I just grilled it. I salted it, grilled it, you know, none of the fancy stuff you're doing. It was the best steak I ever had. It was unbelievably tender, but flavorful. No, steaks are either tough and flavorful or tender and tasteless. Yes. This did yes. both things really well. And Shaoxing wine is not something most people have on hand. It's not hard to find, but you could use sherry or something, I guess, as a Absolutely. substitute. Right? And also, I know you say I'm doing fancy stuff here. This is not fancy stuff. This is a quick toasting of some spices and just kind of sprinkling it on. The whole recipe will take you maybe a half an hour at the most. Lynn, thank you. Spicy Chinese beef skewers. Inspired in part by Jason Wang's childhood in Xi'an. Excellent, as you said, quick meal. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for spicy Chinese beef skewers at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be taking a few more of your calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Alice Taylor from Toledo, Ohio. Hi, Alice. How can we help you today? Well, I had a question originally about lemon flavoring. I bake a old-fashioned buttermilk pound cake, and it calls for two teaspoons of lemon extract and one teaspoon of almond. And it just seems like it bothers me. Something in that that I think is the lemon bothers me. And I was wondering if I could replace that with just pure lemon juice or lemon zest instead of the extract. Yeah, I'm not a fan of lemon extract either. I guess it's made with lemon peels and alcohol, and I think it can be sort of bitter. But for whatever reason, I'm just not a fan of lemon extract. So I'd say ditch it. I agree with you. I am a huge fan of lemon zest. I add it to a lot of things, not even just baking things. I just think it's got, a, you know, it's sort of got the oil of the lemon from the skin, and it's got a ton of flavor, and it's very fresh. You can add a lot of it without screwing up the ratio of liquid. So I would say definitely add some zest to the recipe. And, you know, if you wanted to, you could add a little bit of lemon juice as well, and that would be okay. fine. Oh, good. And also... Mix the lemon zest with the sugar in the recipe, which will help to bring out its flavor. I mean, it depends on how lemony you want the pound cake to be. But if you want it to be really lemony, mix the two together, and that will really help the sugar Uh to pick up the oil from the zest. Well, there's one other thing they make. Instead of extracts, they're oils. 
I forgot the name of the company. Boyajin. Boyajin, yeah. And they make oils, and those are much better than the extracts. Yes, they are. And you, you'll I forgot get a better about flavor. That. Yes. You might want to give Boyajin is B-O-Y-A-G-E-N or yeah. I-N. But anyway, that's an alternative. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. If I add the oil, should I add the lemon zest too, or just Boyajin? I would just use the Boyajin. You won't need the lemon zest. Okay. Just check online to see if it's an equal amount as extract, but my guess is it probably is, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Alice, it's thanks really for calling. Nice Thank you. Talking to you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you want to change the way you cook, just give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or just email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Adam Jatila from uh, Philadelphia here at Walnut Street. Oh, yes, Walnut Street. How can we help you today? My family and I have like a, a Lebanese restaurant slash bakery where we bake lots of, uh, you know, traditional um, Lebanese uh, delicacies and uh, treats and the like. We sell our baklava. I've been the manager for a few years now and trying to start something new by selling our baklava wholesale. We're in three uh, smaller stores here, but I wanted to accelerate the growth and get into like a, a larger chain supermarket. And like, I was wondering if it's okay with you guys to offer some advice on how that uh, to do that. And we're we're approved to it for wholesale. We have all the licensing and all that. So you're trying to figure out how to sell your baklava in, say, a Whole Foods or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I might have to defer to Chris on this one because I've never. Oh, yeah. I have a few thoughts about yeah, this. Yeah, because Chris has been involved in some of this, so I'm going to pass it right Yeah, a few years Chris. ago, we had a coffee sugars. We had some products, and we were putting them into stores. There are two problems. The margins you get are slim. The grocery business is a very low-margin business. You usually have to go through a wholesaler you know, or distributor into the stores. Everyone takes a piece of the action. It's a very difficult business. Yeah. And then you also have to be able to provide enough volume you know, to make it worthwhile. A friend of mine went into the wine business years ago, and they were losing their shirts until they set up a little tasting room in their vineyard, and then they started selling it directly to the retail, to the customer. So I I strongly suggest you find a way to sell it direct because Mm -hmm. you can control it. You make more money that way. If you get involved with supermarket distribution, there's just – I just found it a very unsatisfactory business because there's so many people involved, and you make so little money. So – You know, in this day of e-commerce, I would go the direct route if I were you. Control your your distribution yourself would be my quick business advice. Sounds like good advice to me. Well, I've been through it. And now we sell direct, too. And I I just think it's much better. Right. Adam, thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thank you for the advice. Thanks, Adam. Take care. Take care. Bye. Next up, let's hear from J. Kenji Lopez out. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, What's up? So it's getting into summer, and I thought we could talk a little bit about some outdoor options for cooking in a walk and why you may Hmm. want to consider cooking outdoors in your walk if you've got the space for it. So is this cooking on a grill, or is this cooking on a butane burner, or what? Yeah, so uh, cooking on outdoor on a grill certainly is one option. Um, I mean, first, you know, maybe we want to talk a little bit about why you might want to cook outdoors. Um, there's there's a couple of reasons. So first of all, if you live in a house or an apartment that doesn't have a great vent hood, you know, like I, I lived in 
a New York apartment for many years, and we had these little right. galley kitchens where the vent hoods, all they did was recirculate the air back into your right. apartment. A couple of weeks ago, I was teaching a class in Seattle, all stir-frying in a room with no ventilation at all. We were making Kung Pao chicken, and the moment all the chilies went into the pan, <laughs> you know, pepper spray, essentially, everybody had to leave the room. Right. So right. if you run into that problem also, um, you might consider cooking outdoors. Um, you know, the other advantage, of course, of cooking outdoors is that if you have the right setup, you can actually get much higher heat. Right. Um, but even just having a portable butane burner, you know, there's a company called Iwatani that makes a 15,000 BTU portable butane burner. Butane means one of those small bottles of butane? Exactly, yeah, the oh. little camp stoves. And, and that has enough heat, really? It does, yeah. You know, as long as you're not trying to do, you know, like a Cantonese-style beef chow fun, or you're not trying to cook for 20 people at a time, hmm. you know, those butane burners are great because they have small burners, which is exactly what you want for a walk, and it concentrates the heat right in the center, um, which allows you to stir fry properly. When I was in Thailand years mm-hmm. ago, everyone cooked with a like a 25-gallon propane tank right. hooked up to a burner, uh-huh. and that burner got really hot. Does that have high BTU? Uh, so it depends on the burner. Yeah, so we can talk a little bit about outdoor burner options. Um, you would think... You know, the higher the BTU output, the better it was going to be. Right. But what I found was that once you got above around 150,000 BTUs or so, so that's about 10 times more than your average home burner. You know, once you get up to this really ridiculous range, it's, it's pointless. You know, things get incinerated the second you put them into the pan. Um, and moreover, you know, part of the... Um, the design of a good outdoor burner, especially when you're cooking with a wok, is the way the heat is concentrated. So these big turkey fryers that are designed to heat up a giant pot of oil right, for right. like a crab boil or for t- frying a turkey, um, they actually spread the heat out too much. And so when you're trying to cook in a wok, you know, you really want the heat concentrated at the bottom. And instead what happens is the flame goes up the sides hmm. and you, you burn your hands and you don't have any of the cool zones along the sides of the wok. Um, so there's a company called Power Flamer that essentially takes restaurant-style wok ranges and sets them up so that people can use them at home with the proper regulator and stuff. And you just plug in a propane tank or a natural gas hmm. line. Um, or there's a brand called um, Eastman Outdoors that makes a burner called the, the Big Kahuna, which is 65,000 <laughs> BTU. And that's that's ample. Um, and that, huh. that one is a little bit more slick. You know, it comes with nice legs that feel stable and all that stuff. Um, so if you, you know, if you do want a restaurant style stir fry, which is not necessary, you know, but if you do want a restaurant style stir fry, those would be the two I recommend. Um, and, and, you know, we also talked a little bit earlier about cooking in a walk on an outdoor grill. So right. what I, what I actually recommend is using a charcoal chimney starter, but flipping it upside down. So if it, I've tried doing this in a regular chimney starter the, set the normal way, you know, so I take out the grate for my charcoal grill. I fill up the chimney starter with coals, um, light it the way I normally would, and then put the wok on top. The problem is that when you put a wok on top of a chimney starter the normal way, there's no ventilation, and so you don't get that chimney effect anymore, and so all the coals Hmm. end up going out. If you flip it upside down, the vent holes that are at the bottom of the chimney starter are now at the top, and so you're able to actually get that chimney action. So it pulls air through the bottom, it circulates up through the top, and it uh, keeps the coals nice and hot during the stir-fry. You know, it's a little bit more precarious than cooking on a dedicated burner because a chimney starter is not the most stable thing in the world. But, you know, if you do want to practice outdoor wok cooking and you want to get some really nice concentrated heat and you already have a chimney starter, it's a good way. Uh, It's a good way to do it. So you have a two foot high flaming hot cylinder on which you put a large wok and you say that's slightly (laughs) unstable. Yeah, you want to be careful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I recommend doing it like in a dry field. (laughs) That's a good idea, yeah. (laughs) Um, So I do have a question. So besides Mm -hmm. smoke, et cetera, are there things you would choose to use a walk for outside in the summer, regardless of what your 
indoor kitchen was like? Um, so, yeah. So, you know, again, dish is that feature, that, that wok hay flavor, you mm-hmm. know, that smoky flavor where you really need a really high flame and you want to get that flame kind of leaping into the wok. You know, the classic example of that would be beef chow fun, right? Where the, the seasoning is very simple. It's a bunch of alliums and then soy sauce. But the major component of that seasoning is the smoke flavor itself, where you get the, the flame to leap into the wok and you're really searing the soy sauce as you add mm. it to the wok. And those are flavors that are relatively easy to get. I mean, it still takes practice, but they're relatively easy to get when you have a very high output burner but are difficult or impossible to do um, when you're talking about indoor cooking. Could you be more specific about the flames leaping into the wok? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's similar to the flavor you get when you're cooking a hamburger on a grill and a little bit of the fat drips down to the coals and you see like a little jet of flame come up and it deposits some soot on the food. And so that flavor, when when applied properly and in moderation, um, adds that smokiness that that you get from high heat wok cooking. Um, so so when I say, you know, the flame leaps into the wok, I literally mean you get your oil really hot, you put your noodles in there or your onions or whatever, you start stir frying them and you tilt the pan towards the flame, you tilt the wok down towards the flame as you're tossing food in the air with the goal of getting that flame to leap across all the little aerosolized droplets of oil mm. and the flame to actually jump down into the wok. And so when you do it properly, you'll see the flame literally licking the inside of the wok. And as you're tossing the food through it, it goes through like little kind of like a fireball. And if you do it badly, the next day you're living in an airstream. Right. Because <laughs> you just burn your house down. Um, yes. Kenji, thank you. Taking your stir fry outside. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me as always. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for the New York Times, also author of The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. That's it for today. We have over 200 episodes of Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to our website, 177MilkStreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our television show, and check out our online store for everything from sitar to ginger graters. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and cooking questions, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.